As I was originally considering the message this morning, the text printed in liturgy was, was in view. But to better grasp the context, let's back up a bit to chapter 1 in Philippians and begin there with verse 25, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 11. Hear the word of God. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our gracious, good, omnipotent Creator, we rejoice that you have given and preserved your holy word, that by the truths, the precepts, the principles, and patterns revealed therein, we might grow in the knowledge and conformity to Christ, that the corrections and reproofs the doctrines and instructions in righteousness would thoroughly equip us for every good work. Grant now your spirit to attend the preaching of your word and be at work in each one of us, building us up as new creations in Christ, transforming our minds, growing us in humility, strengthening us in unity, and equipping us for the work of the ministry you have prepared for us. And we pray you would be pleased to do this work for the glory of your name and for the sake of our victorious Savior, even Christ Jesus, 
in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let me look out across the congregation this morning and see your faces and see the smiles and see the joy and see that people that the Lord has placed me among and who and in who I have such a, a great love. It is humbling to stand before you this morning, but um, as I get started here, let me me consider a couple of things before we actually get into the text that uh, we just read. Allow me to provide a brief outline of the message so that you may better know what to expect. First, we're going to take a look at the context of the letter, including a bit of history from the Acts of the Apostles. And secondly, since Philippians is often referred to as the epistle of joy, we will consider a biblical definition of joy. And finally, we'll explore two propositions from the text we just read. So before we jump right in, let's, let's do the history bit a bit. Let's consider the setting and the context of this epistle of joy. If we turn back to the beginning of, of the epistle, we note at the beginning of the letter that the apostle Paul is the author He is writing with his faithful laborer in the gospel, Timothy, close at hand, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This letter is written to all the saints at Philippi, along with the bishops, that is, the overseers, the elders, and the deacons. Note that this is a letter of encouragement and exhortation for the whole church. Does Paul here direct his greeting first to the leadership? No. This is written, first of all, to the saints who make up the church there at Philippi, along with all the fellow workers for their joy, the elders and the deacons, those who have become bondservants to the church for the sake of Jesus, as he writes in his second epistle to the Corinthians. Isn't it interesting, just, just to take a note there, interesting how so often the gospel reveals to us how upside down and backward we tend to approach things and arrange things. This letter is directed first and foremost to all the saints, without respect of persons, regardless of their gifting, whether great or small. This letter is for those who are qualified as saints. Being set apart by virtue of their position in Christ, this is a letter for the church. Let us also consider what else we know about this Philippian church. When we read Acts 15 and 16, we get a little glimpse into the founding and establishing of the church there. Paul, along with Barnabas and and some others, receive a commission from the council of apostles and elders in Jerusalem to take forth a decree regarding those who would unsettle the church by requiring circumcision in order to keep the law. They gave no such commandment, only requiring the church to abstain from from idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Barnabas and Paul, along with this contingent, are sent from Jerusalem to carry the decree to the church. They head north, out of Jerusalem, and are sent, and they head into 
across Syria into Antioch. And the news is received with rejoicing, and they dwell there for some time, teaching and preaching, and the word is multiplied. And after a while, Paul desires to visit other cities where the word has been preached before on the first missionary journey and see how they're doing. Barnabas agrees and wants to take Mark along, but Paul disagrees with that plan because Mark had abandoned them at Pamphylia. This contention grows and becomes so sharp that they are parted one from another. Barnabas takes Mark and sails to Cyprus, while Paul and Silas go overland to Tarsus, and then on to Derbe and Lystra and Iconium. It is in that region that Paul meets young Timothy, the son of a converted Jewish mother, Eunice, we later read about her, and a Greek father. He has been trained up by his mother and grandmother Lois in the faith and already has a well-established reputation by the brethren in that area. Paul takes Timothy under his wing as a disciple, and for the sake of the opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jews, he does something surprising. He circumcises him. Thus, we might say, as Paul wrote of himself to the Corinthian church, to the Jews he became a Jew that he might gain the Jews, and all things to all men that he might gain some. Just consider this act for a moment. Here is Paul carrying a decree from the Jerusalem council that circumcision is not a requirement, a decree that he was passionately in support of, and yet he circumcises Timothy. This is quite an act of selfless humility for the sake of others, but I'm getting ahead of myself. As we follow the narrative in Acts 16, this troop continues the journey through the region of Galatia, and the Holy Spirit forbids them from preaching the word in Asia. They continue on, and they try to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit doesn't permit this. And so they arrive at Troas, where a vision is given to Paul in the night, and a Macedonian man appears to him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Rightly concluding that the Lord has called the them to preach the gospel there, they set out and sell a straight course to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. And so we've arrived at our city. It is here at Philippi with the conversion and baptism of, of Lydia and her household, followed by the Philippian jailer and his household, that the church is established in that city. It is interesting to note as you read through Acts 16 and pay close attention to the pronouns, the author, change, the author changes the pronouns from they to we and us, beginning at verse 10, leading us to conclude, perhaps, that Luke has joined Paul, Silas, and Timothy at Troas. As Luke describes the departure from Philippi, beginning at chapter 17, verse 1, we see the pronoun they again. So perhaps Luke is left behind to establish the church there at Philippi. Now let's move the calendar ahead some 10 or 15 years after the founding of the church at Philippi. And we find Paul writing the epistle to the Philippians from prison in Rome, rejoicing in the opportunity to share the gospel that his chains have afforded him. 
just 10 or 15 years later, which I found to be an interesting time frame. We've been here about that amount of time. Though he longs to be with Jesus, Paul is glad for the opportunity of more time, which he is confident that the Lord has given him, so that he can continue with his ministry to the Philippian church for the sake of their progress and joy of the faith. As he continues, his life is being poured out as a drink offering for their faith. He is glad and rejoices and calls them to rejoice with him in this sacrifice of love and service. Toward the conclusion of this letter, he calls the Philippian church his joy and crown. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will rejoice. I will say rejoice. This is the exclamation that flows out following the public exhortation given to Yodia in Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And he recalls his joy once again as he commends their generosity, a generosity from the church that met him in his time of need. When he departed Macedonia, only this fledgling church at Philippi sent aid to him. Even while he was in Thessalonica, he received aid from Philippi. Yes, Paul had a particular affection for this church. And we see the joy that surrounds it. So with this background, with this setting, this historical context, we come and ask ourselves, what is this joy? This rejoicing that so characterizes this epistle of joy. I would like to suggest that the following biblical definition proposed by John MacArthur comes very close to capturing much of the fullness of the way joy is presented in Scripture. He pulls from how joy is used in Jeremiah, the Gospel of John, Romans, Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, James, 1 Peter, and 1 John as he does so. And here is what he he writes. True joy is a gift from God to those who believe, being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as the believer receives the word and obeys the word, mixed with various trials, and sets their hope on a future glory. We'll visit that a time or two more. With this definition in mind, let's now return to the verses we opened with in chapter 1, verse 25 and 26. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, all for your progress and joy of the faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul has previously declared, and we who are in Christ declare with him, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live on and continue to contend in the faith, to teach and exhort and to build up the saints there, is to serve Christ and to witness the fruit of his labor among those who are being saved. Yet to die means departing and being in the presence of the Lord. There is a desire to depart and to go and be with Christ, a thing which is far better, far sweeter, our ultimate desire, if you will. 
yet remaining in the flesh, is far more needful for this church, for the church, for the saints there at Philippi. And we see a settling of the conviction in Paul's spirit. He is confident that he will remain and continue with the saints for their progress of faith and joy of faith. That their rejoicing for him may be more abundant in Christ by his returning to them. I like the way Matthew Henry puts this. Whatsoever is best for the church, we may be sure God will do. If we know what is needful for building up the body of Christ, we may certainly know what will be. For he will take care of his, its interest and do what is best, all things considered, in every condition it is in. Again, whatever is best for the church, we may be sure God will do that very thing. Paul is motivated in his calling to see their progress of faith, their joy of faith. We often pray here in our context that the Lord would increase our faith, grant us more faith, grant us progress in faith, and this is a good thing to do. Let us not forget to pray also for the joy of faith. For faith is not an abstract, sterile concept. Faith has an object. That object is Christ. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. David prayed in the midst of his repentance to the Lord, Restore the joy of thy salvation, knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord. True joy is a gift from God to those who believe, being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as the believer receives and obeys the word. Having defined biblical joy, we are ready to consider the first proposition. And here it is. We, the church, are to pursue unity within the church, even in the face of suffering, so that our conduct may be worthy of the gospel of Christ. As we turn to verse 27 of chapter 1, we get to Paul's first direct exhortation to this church in this letter. At verse 27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Looking only at this one verse, it is evident that in some way or another, conduct worthy of the gospel is related to being in one spirit, with one mind, and striving together. And we are to cultivate and maintain this one spirit, one mind, striving together unity, regardless of the difficulties of our particular situation or circumstances. Continuing on to verse 28, we see that the saints at Philippi, Philippi are, left, are to let their conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ and not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. And at 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not, to believe, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, 
having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul exhorts the saints to stand fast and maintain a conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ without fear, knowing that the very acts of persecution they endure testifies to the perdition, that is, the utter destruction and condemnation of their persecutors, is also an evidence of their own salvation from God. Why is this so? Why is this so? Because they have been given two great gifts on behalf of Christ. The first gift is belief in Christ, to which we say amen. And the second gift is suffering for Christ's sake, to which we say amen. It's probably a much more reserved amen, would you not think, if it's there at all. And by the way, this is probably received by the church at Philippi without questioning as an encouragement because they had already seen this suffering in Paul. They had seen it when the church was established. They knew that he was writing this letter to them in the context of a prison in Rome. Remember our biblical definition of joy? True joy is a gift from God to those who believe being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as the believer receives and obeys the word, mixed with various trials. Be very wary, brothers and sisters, of any gospel that promises health, wealth, ease, and safety over and against trials and tribulations and suffering in this life. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God, Scripture says. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Tribulation, trials, you see, are a necessary work of the Spirit in preparing us for the ministry the Lord has ordained for us, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which ourselves are comforted by God. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us afar a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When we face various trials in this life, our faith causes us to look beyond those difficulties, knowing that our great God is at work, doing that which is good for us and that which brings Him glory. True joy is a gift from God to those who believe being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as the believer receives and obeys the word of God mixed with various trials and sets their hope on future glory. This brings us to our next proposition, which is unity in the church is cultivated and maintained as we exercise 
humility. Continuing on to to chapter 2 now at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Or, if we were to devise our own amplified version, it might read, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, which there certainly is, if any comfort of love, and of course there is, if any fellowship of the Spirit, well, God's Word said, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Check. If any affection and mercy, and there certainly is, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded in unity, having the same love in unity, being of one accord in unity, of one mind in unity. Okay, maybe that's a little over the top, but you get the point. In other words, Paul is identifying those things which are true of the Philippian church, that is, things that are indicative of Christians everywhere, at all times. And if those things are true, then they are to fulfill his joy by exercising themselves in the one mind, one love, one spirit unity that undergirds conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. But he now gives specific instruction of how that unity is to be cultivated and maintained. At verse 3 and verse 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. We could perhaps spend some profitable time here going through each of the words and phrases, but we can readily see what is in view, can't we? This is a call to humility. This is a denouncement of all the various forms and manifestations of pride. As we read this this epistle, this is where we need to pause. This is where we need to pause and engage with thoughtful introspection. If a fledgling church in the first century facing adversaries ensure tribulation, needs an exhortation in humility and unity, how much more do we, in the 21st century, surrounded by abundance and ease, inconceivable throughout most of history, swimming in a culture of individualism, with little near-term probability of facing harsh persecution for our faith, how much more do we, need an exhortation in humility and unity. We need to come to grips with the fact that enemy, our enemy is pride. Pride is an enemy of unity. A proud man is an individualist. A proud man is a poor servant of others because his pride blinds his ability to even see the opportunity or need to serve. 
A proud man is so concerned with his own reputation, his own special interest and philosophies, his own achievements, his own appetites, liberties, pet peeves, preferences, perspectives, that the others around him and that surround him are primarily there to serve him. A proud man is a consumer of others and a destroyer of unity. Are you proud? Do you struggle with pride? As I consider what I just said about a proud man, I see myself in there. Does anything there ring true for you? Have you ever considered how pride undermines unity and genuine fellowship? Perhaps many of the adults here can recall a particularly sweet childhood friend, a friend with whom you were able to pursue conversation or play in a way that was completely unhindered by pretense whatsoever. Did you have a friend like that maybe when you were little? It didn't matter what clothes he wore, what his parents did for a living, what political views he held, or even what bicycle he rode. You were of like mind and one accord. Is that sort of relationship conceivable now with someone gathered here? If so, good, and praise God. If not, there's some form of pride, some lack of humility, successfully working against unity, the very unity we have been called to. Maybe, maybe you're a wall builder. Sometimes we put up walls to prevent people from getting too close to us because we have been hurt or disappointed by the actions of others in our past. You may believe that you enjoy a measure of unity, but it's a safe unity. This type of unity doesn't fare well when the times get tough. It doesn't fare well when you need to let someone in close, close enough to offer effective counsel, to grieve with you, or even to completely enter into your joy. Maybe, maybe you are the type of person who can't let anyone outside your own family know that life occasionally gets difficult, that you're, you're, you have struggles with your children or your spouse or your parents or whatever. If so, then your genuine koinonio fellowship with the church body is only surface level. It's like a thin veneer, veneer that when scratched reveals that particle board underneath. Perhaps your pride is more of the contentious and argumentative variety. You hold what you believe to be very well-considered opinions, thank you very much, about a number of topics. In fact, you hold them so tightly that anyone who challenges one of those opinions is dismissed as unenlightened, 
and embracing conventional dogma. Sadly, the ultimate end of this sort of pride is too often broken fellowship and a complete lack of unity. Is this the sort of opinionated people that we are? Lord, may it not be so. You see, we must put off pride in all of its forms that we find it and put on humility. This is one of the ways we put off the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Continuing now with our text at verse 5, Paul points us to Christ as our example. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. That is, Jesus purposely, willfully left the glory and perfect triune love of heaven to become a man. He did not forfeit his deity, for that would have been impossible. He did, however, forfeit the glory of heaven, placing himself under the law, subjecting himself to everything any man is subject to. Being tempted to sin, just like any other man, in his humanity, he needed sleep, he became thirsty and hungry. He who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we might become rich through him. He was born in poverty. He lived in poverty. He was betrayed, denied, beaten, and crucified all so that we might have life and that abundantly. So that the due penalty for our sin would be paid in full so that we might possess a righteousness not our own. Christ provides for us in his birth, his life, his death, and even after his death, the ultimate example of an inconceivable humility. And Paul, Paul exhorts the church to let this mind be in you, to possess this mind that Christ had in some way. After Christ's humiliation we see his exaltation beginning at verse 9. Therefore God also has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, we see perfect humility in his condescension and sacrificial life. And we see perfect triune unity, having done the will of his Father, equipping the church with the Spirit. This is what we are called to and what we have been saved unto. 
Brothers and sisters, is there a heaviness? I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. Let it have its work. But let Christ be our example. We have much to be thankful to God for in the unity we now enjoy. Yes, we do. We praise God. We give Him thanks every week for this. But we also need to be mindful that our adversary walks about like a prowling, roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he loves to plant seeds of discord among the brethren. He loves to plant seeds of discord in the church. Therefore, we, desiring to be good stewards of the garden that is the church, are to be diligent in cultivating that garden, plucking out the weeds of pride planting humility, which always, always bears good fruit. I therefore, in the words of Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, beseech you, implore you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, in all lowliness of mind and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, the light of your holy word is perfect, revealing the secret sins of our hearts and directing us in the paths of righteousness. How thankful, how thankful we are for your word which points us to Christ and for His humiliation and exaltation through which we now enjoy fellowship with our Savior. We thank You for the peace and unity we now enjoy in this local church. And we pray that You would grow us into an even greater unity so that our conduct would always be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the joy of Thy salvation would be full. Keep us safe from the evil one who would stir up strife, foment pride, and destroy unity. We thank you for the diversity of gifts you have given to this church and ask that you would direct them according to your perfect and holy will. Search our hearts and thoughts, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in them. And lead us, lead us in the way everlasting. For it is in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.